Father, thank you that we can come to worship you. Thank you for the love that you have for us. Like we saw last week that you call your children greatly beloved. Father, we want to hear your voice this morning. We want to see Jesus in one of the most important prophecies in the Bible. We pray that it would ground our faith a little bit more completely in you, that we would have a more rock-solid foundation knowing who you are, and that you would give us excitement to share the good news about who Jesus is with the rest of the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You know, as a young man, there are some things that, at least for my life as a young man, brought me some fear and intrepidation. You see, about 16, uh, no, sorry, 17 years ago, I met an incredibly beautiful girl. But when you meet an incredibly beautiful girl as a guy, there's some steps that are challenging, and, and, and there's three in particular that, uh, that I, I was filled with dread about. Number one, that is asking her to be my girlfriend. Number two, I don't know if dread's the right word. It may be excitement, but uh, uh, angst about maybe is a better word. than. Number two, you guess what number two would be? Asking her to marry me. And exactly, uh, what was that? About 15 years ago, I asked Leah to marry me. And that was a challenging experience. I had anticipated the moon would be full and that the sun would be rising at the same time that the moon rose. And we went up on Fresno Dome to have the engagement. And I took cold apple cider with us. And uh, some of it worked out and some of it didn't. The moon came up a little late. But here's a picture a little bit later on with the moon behind us. The moon finally came up. And the most important thing is she said, yes. And I'm so thankful for that. And then the good news is, you know, I'm willing to help with the wedding, but the wedding, that's largely her court. But there's one more thing, one more thing for a guy. You know what that is? It's the honeymoon. Where are we going to go on the honeymoon? And how in the world am I, a college student, going to fund a honeymoon? I don't know how this is going to work. In fact, as I began to think about it, I realized this is... This is not going to be pretty. This should be something extravagant, something wonderful to start our lives together. And I was troubled about where am I going to take her? What are we going to do? How is this going to be special? And I really didn't have a lot of options. And I had pretty much no cash to help me out with this. You know, it reminds me of the end of Daniel chapter 8. We have dived into Daniel chapter 9, but at the end of Daniel chapter 8, you can pick up your Bible and look at it, or you can follow along on the screen, we found that Daniel was given an explanation for the majority of the vision that he had in Daniel chapter 8. He was shown an explanation for, he was told what the the, the ram represented that was raised up on one side. He was told what the goat meant. He was told about the horn that exalted itself. He was told about all these things, but then There's one element that was not explained to him. 
And look at verse 27 of chapter 8. Daniel 8 and verse 27. When he comes to the end of this, he's told that the, the vision of the evenings and mornings, the 2300 days, that's for many days in the future, but he's not told how to understand what are these 2300 days about? What is this exactly? And this is how Daniel feels, not knowing the answers that he wants to know. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. There's, there's nobody that could understand. There's no options here. How do we solve this? And, and on a bigger scale or a more personal scale for Daniel at this point, Daniel's concerned because this vision is talking about many days in the future. And where is Daniel? He's a captive in Babylon. He's still in the midst of captivity and his nation is not established. The temple is not able to have its worship service. It's laying in ruins back in Israel. And so you can imagine, he's troubled. He wants to understand what's going on. And last week, we looked at how he enters into this prayer of confession. And he confesses about the sins of his people. And he recognizes, having studied the prophecies of, Dan, of Jeremiah, that, that this 70 years is coming to a conclusion. He's no longer a teenager. He's now in his 80s, probably. And he recognizes that the time has come for Jesus to set them free, for, for God to release them from captivity. And last week we ended after that beautiful prayer. And you remember how that prayer, it, it started with a confession of what? God's faithfulness, God's love, God as a covenant-keeping God, that God is faithful We've been unfaithful, we have sinned, we have transgressed, we've done wickedly. But God, you have been righteous, you have been good. Confession is not just talking about my problems, but it starts with confessing the goodness of God, the reality of who God is, and that leads me to confessing that I have fallen far short of that. But at the end of that prayer, he's told, or suddenly the man Gabriel shows up to him, the angel Gabriel, who stands at the right hand of the Father, this most exalted angel, shows up to him and he says, I was caused to, to fly swiftly. And let's pick up again where Gabriel talks in Daniel chapter 9. Oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you what? Skill to understand. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, we've been looking at a prayer that Daniel's given. We, we know that he's studying the prophecies of Jeremiah, that he recognizes that the time has come. But there's no vision here. There's no mysterious thing here that Daniel does not understand. The last time he didn't understand something was back in Daniel chapter 8, years beforehand, because this is, that was in Belshazzar's reign. Oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you skill to understand. Now notice this, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. That's where we ended last week. Daniel, you are greatly beloved. You're asking for forgiveness, and I've come to tell you that God loves you. And we saw that, that God's forgiveness comes in the form of him pouring out his love, which transforms our heart. Now, it's fascinating because can you think of somebody else in the Bible who is beloved by God, we're told? Think of anybody else in the Bible? John, Jesus' disciple. Jesus was, uh, we'll look at that in a second, Jesus was greatly beloved, but 
uh, by his father, but his disciple John, his youngest disciple, is known as the beloved disciple. And in the Bible, there are two books that have apocalyptic prophecy in them. So John is the one that's reclining on the breast of Jesus at the upper room. And he is the one that Jesus shows up to on the Isle of Patmos and gives the vision of Revelation. He's beloved of God. Daniel is told that he is beloved of God. And he gets vision after vision from God that reveal things that are happening in the future. And so if we come to the Bible and we find that our exploration of prophecy, our diving into prophecy is so focused on the headlines, it's so focused on the signs and symbols, and we're not falling in love with Jesus, we're missing the whole point. It's those who are beloved of God, those who are falling in love with God that truly can understand and grasp the beautiful prophecies of the Bible. Then the angel goes on to say, therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. The last time the word vision was used was in Daniel chapter 8. There has not been another vision that has been unpacked. So what is he talking about? What does he want him to consider? What does he want him to understand? It's the vision of chapter 8 and specifically the part of the vision that was not explained before, which is the 2300 evenings and mornings, the 2300 days until the sanctuary is cleansed. So, okay, here's a, we're going to look at what the angel says to him now. But I want you to know something, full, full disclosure here, that you could be under a curse for reading this. Um, this is actually, I believe, in the Talmud where uh, it says this, blast, it, blast be the bones of those who calculate the end. Blast be the bones of those who calculate the end. Specifically talking about Daniel 9 saying, cursed is anybody who takes the time to calculate and try to figure out when this is talking about. There's a really uh, specific reason that, that this is frowned upon uh, within Judaism. Now, on the flip side of that, there's an incredible scientist, mathematician by the name of Isaac Newton who also loved to read the Bible and study the Bible and to do theology. And he said this about the book of Daniel. We saw this first part, but notice the whole thing here. And to reject his prophecies, being the prophecies of Daniel, is to reject the Christian religion. Isaac Newton, the one who discovered gravity, who understood all these scientific things that he helped us to advance. As he studied the book of Daniel, he said, If you reject the book of Daniel and the prophecies there, you're rejecting the Christian religion. And more specifically, he said, for this religion is founded upon his prophecy concerning the Messiah. Some have said that that Isaac Newton said the prophecy that we're looking at today is the cornerstone or the foundation stone of the Christian religion. We're getting to the height of the book of Daniel. We're getting to the most exciting and important part of the book of Daniel in the end of chapter 9 and in chapter 10. So let's get into it, shall we? Daniel chapter 9, verse 22 and 23. The angel Gabriel says, Consider the matter, understand the vision, and here it is. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Seventy weeks are, are determined. Now that word determined is actually the word cut off. 
The, the word is, is only used once in the Hebrew Bible, in my understanding, and it's in other places used to talk about cutting something off. So there are 70 weeks that are cut off for who? What are they cut off for? For your people and for your holy city, for Jerusalem. All right, so there's something fascinating as we look at this. What is this talking about? What is 70 weeks? What does that mean for Daniel? What does that mean for his people? There's an interesting story in Matthew chapter 18. Peter comes up to Jesus and he thinks, you know, Jesus is super gracious. So I'm going to ask him about forgiving people. And rather than, you know, tradition had it that, you know, if you were really gracious, I think it was like two or five times or something, you could forgive somebody for the same sin. He said, I'm going to try to go a little bit higher than that with Jesus. He says, Jesus, if somebody sins against me and then asks for forgiveness, should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus' response was, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 70 times seven. You should be so gracious that it should be 70 times seven. What's 70 times seven? It's 490. What is 70 weeks? How many days are there in 70 weeks? There's 490 days that are cut off from this time prophecy of the 2300 days. And we're not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but I invite you to, to, uh, to ask questions if you have them, if you haven't studied this before for yourself. But in the Bible, in, in Bible prophecy, you find in Ezekiel 4.6 and in Numbers 14.34 that a day can represent a year in Bible prophecy. The Numbers 14.34 is when the spies go into the promised land and they are spying it out. They spy it out for 40 days. They come out and they spread a bad report. Ten of them do out of the twelve. And God says, because they refused to go in at that point, he says, you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness, a day for each year that you were spying out the promised land. We saw another thing where Ezekiel says, God tells him to lie on your side a day for a year. So 70 weeks... 490 years are cut off from this 2,300-year period. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So let's do a little timeline up here. We've got 490 years that are cut off. They're, they're cut off of the beginning portion of this 2,300 days. And let's keep going through the, the prophecy. They're determined for your people and for your city. Now notice what for. 20, verse 24, and we're actually just going to list these. Verse 24 continues to say, To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision, to seal up end prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Just let some of those things ruminate for you. These seven tasks that are given. Uh, God's people in the holy city, there's this cutoff time, 490 years are allotted to them to accomplish something. And look at the mission that they're given to accomplish, to finish transgression. Wouldn't that be great? No more transgression. To make an end of sins, no more hurting each other, the planet no longer in chaos, an end of sin. But not only that, there's hope in this prophecy for who? The sinner. Because it says, make reconciliation for iniquity. 
So those who have transgressed, those who have committed sins, there's going to be 490 years in order to make reconciliation for those transgressions. No wonder Jesus tells his disciples, forgive 70 times 7, 490 times. And they would have instantly, light bulbs would have gone off in their minds and they're thinking, he's talking about Daniel chapter 9, he's talking about the 70 weeks. We've been given 490 years, we've been given this chance, we've been given this. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision, to seal up prophecy, and anoint the most holy. Now, you imagine having this list and thinking that you needed to accomplish it. You've got 490 years to get this done, and hundreds of years go by, and you're getting closer and closer to the end of this 490 years. What do you begin to do? You begin to think, okay, I've got to get this guy in line. I've got to get that guy in line because they don't have it together and they're not doing this and they're not getting it right. And, and if this doesn't happen, here's what they believed. Here's from the Talmud what they believed. The scion of David, meaning Mashiach or the Messiah, will come if they keep just one Shabbat. Because, he goes on to say, the Shabbat is the in total of the Mishvat, all 613 laws. If only somebody could keep the Sabbath properly, then the Messiah can come. If we can get it together, then the Messiah will finally come back. That's the picture that the Pharisees, the rabbis, the scribes were portraying to the people as we come to the first century A.D. And so it's no wonder that as Jesus goes around, there are people hounding his footsteps, sending spies after him. Everywhere that he goes, they're watching his every footstep. What is this teacher doing? He's healing on the Sabbath. He's breaking some of these things that we have set in place to protect this. The Messiah won't be able to come if Jesus keeps doing what he's doing. Because they were seeking to establish their own righteousness, Roman 10 says. And they missed the righteousness of God. They missed what righteousness actually looks like. They missed Jesus seeking to make themselves what they thought they needed to be within those 490 years. They tried to accomplish this list but thankfully, the prophecy does not give us this glim and bleak picture that, uh-oh, the Jews better do this or else they're out. Because is it really possible? I don't know if you've ever tried this. You know, just, I'm not going to sin today. I'm not going to, for the next month, for the next year, there'll be absolutely no sin in my life. And the more that you focus on a particular object, if you ever try it mountain biking, if you ever go out mountain biking, Don't look at the rocks. The more you look at the rocks, the more you will hit every single rock on the trail. (laughs) I took Leah out mountain biking the first time, and I neglected to tell her this, and it turned out kind of painful. You see this when you walk through a door, especially if you're a tall person. You don't focus on the door frame or the top of the door. You look where you want to go, and if you look where you want to go, you're going to duck. You're going to go through. You'll make it through if you only focus on where you need to go. But if you focus on the doorframe, you focus on the rocks, you will hit them time and time again. Well, thankfully, 
Daniel continues in verse 25. He says, know therefore and understand. You've got this big list, Israel. Israel, you have to accomplish this within 490 years. Are you going to get it done? Know therefore and understand. I need you to understand something. Here's something really important. Here is the climax or one of the top pinnacles of the book of Daniel. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The Messiah is coming. This isn't about what the Jewish nation will get themselves to do. This is about what Jesus will accomplish. This is about the Messiah who's coming, the only one who can establish righteousness. Until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we break this down. From the 2300 years, we have the 490 years, the 62 weeks, 62, uh, and sorry, seven weeks and 62 weeks would be 69 weeks. Some equate the seven weeks with the time frame of rebuilding the temple and of Jerusalem. And the 62 weeks, that makes 69 weeks, which is 483 years until Messiah. And it gave us a beginning point. A beginning point that was, what did it say? The command to build and restore Jerusalem. Now there are a few different commands, but the one that allowed for all of Jerusalem to be restored, the walls and everything to be restored, was we find in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. And we can date it historically, looking at history books, when Artaxerxes made this decree, and it was in 457 BC. Now if you're reading this, you got to start getting excited, especially if this was your first time, because suddenly you realize something. If you can date when this decree goes out, then what else do you have the marker for? You can decide, oh, in exactly 483 years, the Messiah is coming. And that word in Hebrew, some versions will translate it as the anointed one, because Mashiach simply means the one who was anointed. The anointed one is coming in 483 years. Daniel, you're worried about Jerusalem. You're worried about the temple. But I want to tell you something. The most important thing is that there's a Messiah coming, a Savior who will save you from yourself. And we're going to see in Daniel chapter 10 that Daniel, when he comes in contact with divinity, he recognizes how desperately even he needs a Savior, one that we don't have any record of sin on on tap. We find that he is deeply in need of a Savior from his sinful nature. 457 B.C., so if we track forward from that, uh, this enables us also to do something else. If this is cut off from the 2300 years, that enables us to figure out the beginning point for the 2300 years, which leads us to the sanctuary being cleansed beginning in the year 1844. Now notice that this prophecy seals up the vision and the prophecy. What enables us to to, to comprehend the sanctuary being cleansed in heaven, something that we cannot physically see, something that we can't grasp by by pointing here or there on earth. Uh, What really helps us to see that is seeing what happens with the Messiah. Because he's the one that seals up the vision and seals up the prophecy. So we're told there's 70 weeks, 490 years. This is, this is what Israel's given until 34 AD. But the promise is that somebody's coming. The Messiah is coming in 27 AD. And he's going to fulfill 
the, the covenant just in time. I don't know if you've looked at it that way. I've looked at it before saying, okay, there's 490 years, the Jews missed it, and now it's our turn. <laughs> but the reality is there's 490 years, and an Israelite shows up, a Jew shows up, and he perfectly fulfills the covenant. It was accomplished in Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful to see how it was accomplished. But there can be fear and intrepidation trying to figure out how you're going to solve the problems in the world, let alone where you're going to go on your honeymoon. So I remember thinking about this. And as we realize the the need for a Messiah, we begin to, to ask for this. We begin to ask for help. And sometimes we start small. I knew that my parents had a friend, or maybe my mom told me about it, my dad told me about it, who had at various times offered for them to go and stay at his condo in Santa Barbara. And I began to think to myself, Santa Barbara is a beautiful place. This is a wonderful place to to spend a honeymoon. And as I talked with my parents, they said, you know what? I have amazing parents. They're like, we'll make this request for you. We'll ask if you could use that that condo for a week and enjoy beautiful Santa Barbara. Ah, boy's problem saved. I am now able to rest and enjoy the wedding, enjoy everything else because I have solved the honeymoon issue. We're going to Santa Barbara and it's going to be beautiful. Asking for help is what is the crucial thing and what we need to come to realize is that we need a Savior. But sometimes we underestimate what that Savior will do for us. We, we tend to limit Him. We come up with our constructions of what it should look like. And, and it's far smaller than what Jesus has in mind. Because He is really, really good. Galatians chapter 4 gives us this picture that this timing is so important. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. It wasn't just accident when Jesus was born. Jesus came right on time. In the fullness of time, he came right on time to save humanity. It was at the fullness of time that he came. And Luke gives us a picture of exactly that. Luke, the historian, the physician, the only Gentile to write in the New Testament, to write a, a book of, or letter of the, the Bible, He records so many historical details, including this in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. This is something really easy for us to find in the history books. It's something that you can look up and find for yourself. That the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, we can find that because the first year was, I think it was uh, AD 14, 13, 14? Anyway, <laughs> you need to look it up for yourselves. That's, that's why I don't want to tell you everything here. <laughs> it was eighty thirteen, I believe. So the first year, of, and then we go forward 15 years, which takes us to the year 27 A.D. 27 A.D. So what happens in 27 A.D.? A man comes preaching and he's saying, hey, the time's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. And people say, what do we need to do? He says, repent. What does that look like? Well, if you have two cloaks, make sure you share one. Stop stealing tax collectors and soldiers. Make sure that you treat people right. This is what it's called to. It's called to a horizontal love for humanity around you. On the cusp of Jesus coming back. This is what Jesus is concerned about. This is what God is concerned about. It's how we treat each other. Do we have kindness for each other? We could know all the right stuff. 
We could be like, we, we saw in Isaiah 58, and we're filled with strife and debating. Meanwhile, we walk past the person who has no jacket and we don't care. Or the person in church who's hurting. Or the person that we like the least around us, and we simply don't take the time to care. John the Baptist came preaching, and he came also baptizing those who were repenting. And as he's baptizing those who are repenting, in Luke chapter 3, it goes on to record that Jesus comes in the 15th year of Tiberius, and he comes, and Jesus is baptized. And you remember what happens? When he's baptized, he comes up out of the water, he goes up on the bank, and he's praying, and what happens? Heaven opens up. A dove comes down, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. God's voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is a faithful Israelite. This is what a faithful human being looks like. Here is finally one that is fulfilling the covenant. Jesus did it. I haven't done it. You haven't done it. Jesus has done it all. And Paul later on picks this up in Ephesians chapter 1 and says that you are accepted in the beloved. You are accepted because Jesus is accepted. What I need to do is to accept and believe and confess the reality of who Jesus is. And he can pour out his Holy Spirit on me and change everything for me and you too. But not only uh, did he receive the Holy Spirit, but when was he officially taking on this role of the anointed one, the Messiah. Luke records in Acts, he wrote Acts as well, chapter 10 and verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How was Jesus anointed? It wasn't in those uh, 30 years growing up. It wasn't until he was baptized that he received the anointing of the Holy Spirit in a special way, and he embarked upon his special mission as the Messiah. That's when he became the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one. In AD 27, right on time, until, until the, the seven weeks and 62 weeks, then will come Messiah the Prince. He showed up right on time and was anointed by the Holy Spirit right on time. The history books confirm what the Bible has to say to us, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is who Jesus is. Notice what it goes on to say. He went about doing good. He was filled with the Holy Spirit to to do good to every person that he came in contact with and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, not just those who were worthy, not just those who had said the right things, not just those who were doing the right things. He healed everybody. How scandalous. They, They looked at him and they said, what is this guy? He's a friend of tax collectors. He's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of prostitutes. And Jesus said, I came for those who are sick. I didn't come for those who are well. You've got to recognize your need of a Savior and begin to ask and to see how good he is. Jesus went around doing good and healing. Meanwhile, people were watching and wondering, is this done on the Sabbath? Is he doing this the right way? And we have to ask in our own minds, what attitude do I take towards the people around me? Am I encouraging them in Christ? Am I lifting them up? Am I pointing them to what they can be in Christ? Or am I pointing my finger and saying, you didn't do this, and you didn't do that, and what's wrong with you? And, and if, it's not for, if you don't get your act together, then you realize that we're living in the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary, and Jesus might not come back because of you. Or do I have the heart of Daniel? 
who confesses corporately my own admission of where I have fallen short and who looks to encourage the people around me about how much God loves them. On which side will I be? On the side of the one who gave his life for humanity or on the the side of the accuser of the brethren? Mark chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus begins to preach, he comes out saying, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, notice, when Jesus comes and he gives his first sermons as he's going around Galilee, notice the content we're told of his message. The time is fulfilled. Sometimes we look at Daniel and we look at Revelation and say, I don't know. I just want to focus on Jesus. Jesus is telling them, Daniel told you the time is coming, the kingdom is here, you can accept me as Messiah because these prophecies are pointing to today, to now. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn, and believe the good news of who I am. Jesus, as he was going around healing, some were listening, some were asking for help. And others were on his footsteps seeking to condemn him, looking to see, did he measure up in their eyes to what they thought that he needed to be in order for the Messiah to come? All the while, the Messiah is there working among them. You know, the Bible gives a picture that the latter rain is going to be falling and that that people are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and that there will be people who, they know a lot of the truth, but they do not recognize the movings of the Holy Spirit, who is anointing people to do good, to heal everyone around them. So then verse 26 continues, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, notice this, but not for himself. In Daniel chapter 8, we have this picture of the, the ram who magnifies himself. And then the next Gadol is the word that's used. Then you have the goat. He magnifies himself greatly. And then you have the little horn that comes up. He, he does Gadol exceedingly great. He's making himself greater, making himself greater, making himself greater. This tells us that the Mashiach, the anointed one, when he comes, he's going to go down. And he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. Not because he deserved it. Not because he had done anything wrong. He will be cut off for humanity's sake. So that humanity can see the love of God. Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. It's a different kind of kingdom. We saw the statue in Daniel chapter 2, and we saw the rock cut out without hands. They're completely different the way the world governs and the way Jesus governs by self-sacrificing love. Messiah will be cut off, but not For himself, self-sacrificing love is the one principle that will be eternally sustainable and exponential throughout the unending ages. Everything else can pass away, but self-sacrificing love will continue on forever and ever. Then verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for how long? One week. All right, so Messiah is going to be doing this, and it it keeps going back into the fact that Jerusalem, meanwhile, will be destroyed and become a desolation. But the Messiah, he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. How long is is one week in prophetic time as we've been looking at it? 
Seven days, which would be seven years. So for seven years, is this something that we see in Jesus' life as he goes around? Well, one thing we see specifically, did he confirm a covenant as he was in the upper room? What did he say to his disciples when he took that cup? He said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for many in Matthew chapter 26. He's establishing, he's confirming the covenant. He is the one faithful Israelite, and he's also the faithful God who comes to humanity and who is able to establish the covenant, to confirm the covenant with humanity. And he took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Then verse 27 says this, but in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51, as Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished what takes place. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No human hand could have done this. The veil is torn in two. And from that moment on in heaven's eyes, that service in the temple no longer pointed to Jesus. It no longer pointed to the Messiah. He put an end to sacrifice and offerings when he died on the cross. So we have this picture of the one week, the seven years that he was confirming and establishing the covenant. We saw already AD 27, this is in the autumn of AD 27, was the baptism of Jesus. If you go forward three and a half years, that gets us to the spring of AD 31, the Passover time of AD 31, when he is cut off, but not for himself. That the God of the universe loved you more than himself. That selfless love laid down itself on the cross. And on that day, he brought an end to sacrifice and offering in 31 AD at the crucifixion. Then for the next three and a half years, he ascends to heaven. He pours out that anointing on his followers. They receive the Holy Spirit. They start with Jerusalem. They start with the the Jewish nation. And then we find the stoning of Stephen. And after that, suddenly they're going out to the Gentiles. They're going out beyond the Jewish nation. And they themselves are Jews who have gotten it. They are Jews who have accepted the Messiah. Yes, there are those Jews who rejected the Messiah, but there were also those Jews who accepted him and who we have the Bible because of who wrote the majority of the New Testament who saw the fullness that there is in a Savior, Jesus. So this was accomplished. These seven tasks were accomplished by Jesus. And notice what Paul goes on to say, what he boldly claims about every promise that God has ever made. For all the promises of God, think about how many promises there are throughout the Bible. He says all of the promises that God has ever made to humanity are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Everything that God has ever said, it is fulfilled and it comes to fruition in our lives. Why? Because of the only faithful one. Because of Jesus. And when we get our eyes fixed on Jesus as the only faithful one, then those promises can be established in our lives. You know, you think about it. Jesus said, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He says, I am the temple basically. He's putting himself in juxtaposition to the temple. And he says, your house is left to you desolate. In fact, Here's an important thing to grasp about Bible prophecy. If we continue looking to Daniel chapter 7, you find that there are desolations decreed for the temple 
until the end. There's this idea in Christianity that that, that that final week, which applies so beautifully to the life of Jesus, as he was cut off in the middle, it points directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. What better thing for Satan to counterfeit than that? And if you read it in some translations, they interpret it for you to be that that's the Antichrist who's going to go and seek to rebuild Jerusalem and that there's going to be this rebuilding of the temple that needs to take place in a seven-year tribulation. And they take this part of the 70 weeks and they toss it down to the end of time with no scriptural backing for it whatsoever. So we've got to to realize that, that it's all pointing to Jesus. We can't focus on all these other things that are such a distraction. Israel is important to us because they are loved by God. But they are not more important than the Palestinians who are also loved by God, or the Ukrainians, or the Russians, or any human being on this planet who is loved by God. We do not have a calling as Christians to support a nation. We support all of humanity as beloved children of God. And we've got a problem here in the United States because we've got a specific version of Christianity that's pushing us in a certain direction that we have to do certain things in order for Jesus to come. And this is not prophesied in the Bible. If if you find that to be uh, something that you have questions about, please ask. Or if you find something where you say, no, 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 I, I have the answers that this is completely different, please come show me because I obviously need to understand better. All the promises, let's get back to Jesus, all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. The the New Testament is replete with this idea. Here's a, a little glimmer of how some of those steps were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Notice this, for when we were still without strength. Have you felt strengthless this week? Weak, like you didn't have enough to go on? I just heard somebody talking about how Burnout is so common among people this day that people are just feeling like there's too much going on. When you are without strength, in due time, that word right there again is this fullness of time, in due time, right on time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right at the point that he had promised that he would come, he came and he died for the godly? For the ungodly. We need to recognize that we need a Savior. We've got to make the request, and it's got to be a lot bigger than we think. Not just help me with these little things in my life. I just, if I get rid of those, Jesus, I'll be good. I need a complete change. This nature has to be transformed, this sinful nature, into the nature of Christ. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies... When did he do the reconciling? When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Notice, the Messiah would come and he would... Bring in reconciliation. He's the one who came and approached us and brought reconciliation, pulling us back. Reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more than having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. We've got to just trust in Jesus. Now this past week, actually, this promise became very personal to me. You know, as a pastor... I cannot meet the needs that I want to meet. There is far more pain, suffering, sickness, financial insecurity, things going on in people's lives than I can solve. And there's plenty of ways in which I recognize I don't measure up to what I need to be as a pastor. There's, there's ways that I can be a far better leader. There's ways that I, I could 
speak a whole lot more clearly to people. And this week, I was just reading through 2 Corinthians, kind of feeling the weight of, of my insufficiency, my incompetence. And I read this. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. Another version says, not that we are competent in ourselves. To think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency, our competence is from God. I recently told somebody, you know, I'm struggling in this area. And they said, well, you just better go build that competence and figure it out. You just need to, to add that to your, your book. And there are helpful things to do that. But what it comes down to ultimately is that Jesus is my sufficiency. Jesus is your sufficiency. He's your competence. He's your only righteousness. He's the only way of salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And Colossians 2.10 just simply says it this way. Paul says, and you are complete in him. You don't have to walk out of here thinking, well, do I measure up yet? Have I reached this certain standard which the Bible doesn't give us a specific line that you have to cross in order to have arrived at a specific thing? Instead, we are constantly growing up into the image of Christ. And you are complete now where you are at in him. And as you trust in Him, as you look to Him, as you look in the direction you need to go, you will be transformed by beholding His image. Maranatha, page 99, says it this way, a little devotional book. It says, Will not our church members keep their eyes fixed on a crucified and risen Savior? That's at the heart of Daniel, is look to the Messiah, the Prince, who will be cut off, but not for himself, who will put an end to sacrifice and offerings, who will stop the madness, and who will finally put an end to sin and transgression. Will not our church members keep their eyes fixed on a crucified and risen Savior in whom their hopes of eternal life are centered? Then goes on to say this. This is our message. It's talking to Seventh-day Adventists particularly. This is the message, a crucified and risen Savior. From beginning to end of the Bible, this is our message. This is our argument. You want to argue with somebody? Argue about how good Jesus is. Argue about how incredible his love is and what he's doing in your life. Tell them that they are loved by God. Our doctrine, every bit of our doctrine, can be found in the cross of Jesus Christ in the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. Our warning to the impenitent. You see somebody who's going the wrong way? Point them to Jesus and the cross. Our encouragement for the sorrowing those who are grieving, those who are in need, those who are, are distraught over what's gone wrong in their lives. Our encouragement for them is look at the cross. Behold Jesus, the hope for every believer. More and more I find people struggling with addiction, struggling with things that they've been going through and realize they need hope. They need to know that there's a Savior who can pull them up out of the mire and into his loving arms. Jesus, as he was anointed, he went into Nazareth, his hometown, and he picked up a scroll and he began to read and he, he melded together some chapters from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61 and 58, and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me. And what does that look like? Because he has anointed me, I'm the Messiah, to preach the gospel to the poor, to those who don't have, who recognize their poverty, their spiritual poverty, their physical poverty. They open their hearts to a Savior. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You want to know what the Holy Spirit comes to do? 
He's going to use you to heal broken hearts all around you. To proclaim liberty to the captives. To to set people free. And he's quoting from Isaiah 58 as we get to the end. And recovery of sight to the blind. He went around literally healing people so they could see. There are people in India that we talked about who are going around providing $75 surgeries that are giving people the hope of life and being able to see just by a simple cataract surgery. God wants us to work for his kingdom here. As he said, pray that, your, my, uh, that Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then notice this, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. As he's there, he's proclaiming to them what they would have recognized as, it is the year of Jubilee. What we talked about last week, that they never fulfilled this idea of letting the land rest, of letting their servants rest, of letting their, their, their slaves go free, of returning the land in the year of Jubilee. This never happened. They didn't forgive debts. But Jesus came and he said, I've come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus is far better than we have ever realized. We need to, to, to up our ask, to up our expectations of what we expect from Jesus. And I learned that as, as I was attempting uh, to plan for this moment of getting in that getaway car and going away and we're going to Santa Barbara and we're going to enjoy our honeymoon. And Leah was reminding me that it was within weeks, because we were on break already from college. We got married my senior year of college, her sophomore year. We're on Christmas break, and the phone rings. And it's the guy on the phone that my parents talked to, and I went through them to get to him in order to hopefully give us a condo in Santa Barbara. And as he calls, he says, you know, um, I just sent my son to this resort in Hawaii for his honeymoon. He just got married a month or two ago. Would you want to go to Hawaii for your honeymoon? Would you want to go to that resort? I was like, well, I mean, uh, I'm in college. I can't, can't. We come to God with all this, well, I can't, and I don't have, and I'm not enough, and I don't. And he said, I'll, I'll pay for the tickets. I'll pay for your time in the resort. I want to do this for you like I did for my own son. My beloved son, I love you too. What if that's how God treats us? What if we stopped walking around with condemnation, with this, this load of guilt, and we recognize the favor and the love of God that is poured out on humanity, and that were the good news that we were taking to people? So we're... I was a little bit more excited, you might imagine, at the end of the wedding. Here we are in the getaway car. I am so excited, but, but I'll tell you that, that I, again, I didn't, I didn't fully grasp how good this guy was going to be to us. Now, he's not like Jesus, don't get me wrong, but, but it's an illustration, so come with me on this, because as we're getting to the elevator to come down to the car, he's there at the elevator, and he hands me an envelope. And we get in the car, and I don't remember if it was in the car when we got back, but I remember opening that envelope, and I'm counting the $100 bills. Okay. <laughs> That's really, really generous. $2,000 for our honeymoon. And, and, and then 
we see this escort, escort vehicle pull up. We had not planned it. We had not asked him to. But all of a sudden, up behind our getaway car pulls this escort vehicle, a Hummer. And he follows us out of the wedding. He follows us to our car. Now, we had told him, um, we, we're going to need to get back to school at the end of vacation. And, and, and he had said, well, I'm going to fly you in and out of Sacramento. We said, well, how are we going to get to Sacramento for our flight? And he said, I'll take care of that. He followed us in his Hummer to the house. He picked us up after we'd changed and grabbed our bags. And he took us to the airport in Bakersfield, got us onto his private charter jet As we went on our honeymoon, we spent the first few hours of our married life riding on a private jet. I haven't done so since. We rode on that private jet to Sacramento, stayed in a hotel. The next morning, we get up and get on the airplane and go to Hawaii. And we spend our honeymoon in a resort in Hawaii with a balcony that's looking out on this view. We ate breakfast here with our little groceries bought from the store because we couldn't afford much. Looking at this beautiful view, our honeymoon was so much more than it could have been. What if we had never asked to begin with? And I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you've never asked Jesus in the first place. Maybe you're carrying a weight of lo- a whole bunch of things in your life and you've never started with asking Jesus to be your Savior. You thought you needed to get it right to come to Him. I want to invite you today to find out that you are complete in Jesus. If you haven't accepted that before, or it's been a while, I, want to, I don't want you to walk out of here without accepting now that you are complete in Jesus Christ. For some of the rest of us, maybe we, we kind of know that. But then we, we begin to go about our emotions and we begin to, to depend more and more and more on ourselves and we need to get back to the fact that Jesus is the center of it all, that he is the one that has kept covenant, that he is the faithful one, and that as we trust in him, we can become complete in him. Jesus, forgive me, forgive us for making it about so many other things. Forgive us for creating debate and strife and for criticizing each other, forgetting the fact that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher of our faith, that everything is in Jesus and we're called to share the good news about who Jesus is. Oh God, would you help us to accept the completeness, the fullness, the competency, the sufficiency that is in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And would that not just be words, would it not just be sayings, but may it actually put rubber to the road in our lives. May we extend the same mercy and forgiveness and grace and goodness to everybody around us. May we allow you to be a savior to the world through us. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on my friends here. Father, anoint them with your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Spirit. Give them power to be ministers of the new covenant finding their sufficiency in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to realign our focus, to help us to see that all of the Bible, all of prophecy, every bit of doctrine, every bit of what we believe comes down to the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your self-sacrificing love. Father, may we accept it and may we live it out. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.